like a babe feeding on its mother's milk. And welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Dalwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode, we're discussing Guillermo del Toro's 2021 film noir, Nightmare Alley. But before we get into all that nightmare stuff, what is going on? Well, Paul's been making me very envious recently, haven't you, Paul? I'm afraid so, Matt. My apologies. Mm. You'll be there again one day, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Well, maybe when the crowds are significantly smaller. Well, when's that going to be? <laughs> but when they move to a bigger convention centre and they're not all crammed in like sardines would help. Oh, I see. A bigger convention centre. Bigger than the one in Indianapolis. We're talking about Gen Con, of course. Mm-hmm. So this coming week, at the time of release of this episode, like in a, in a few days, yes, I'll be at Gen Con. I've got a few things lined up. So on the Thursday at 1.30, I'm on the Chaosium booth doing signing, not singing, as somebody thought. Uh, so uh, if you want your copies of Call of Cthulhu books and Ribs of London, uh, that's the place to get them. Then on Thursday evening, I'm teaming up with You 2 Can Cthulhu and running Full Fathom 5, which should be a, a fun experience. And then on Friday, I'm on a panel. I think it's called Horror on the Tabletop. I may have mangled the name, but it's something like that. And that's at 12 p.m. at the Crown Plaza, Haymarket A. You say you're not going to be singing to people, but I'm sure you can go, hello. Hello. (laughs) Yes. In a reminiscent of our old way. I mean, I could (laughs) if I want to scare them away. And now on to our main topic, Nightmare Alley. Following on from our discussion of spiritualism and seances a few episodes ago, we decided to take a look at a film about a fraudulent medium. Spoiler alert. While Nightmare Alley isn't set in the Victorian age, it still offers plenty of Call of Cthulhu inspiration. In fact, it took me a little while to work out exactly what the year was. Mm. We're focusing on the 2021 film adaptation, but we may... In other words, Scott may mention details of the original <laughs> novel and the previous film from 1947. So this 2021 film, Nightmare Alley, is Guillermo del Toro's adaptation of William Lindsay Gresham's 1946 novel of the same name. The previous adaptation starring Tyrone Power, now there's a name, yes. is something of a noir classic. I mean, that should have been the character's name in the thing, really, Tyrone <laughs> Power. It sounds awesome. Oh, Tyrone Power was a huge matinee idol back in the 1940s. This 
adaptation, the 47 adaptation, was kind of notorious because it took this beloved leading man and put him in this really quite unpleasant role as Stanton Carlyle. And it was a, a real break. It was his attempt to try to become more of a serious actor. And the film bombed. A lot of that was put down to the fact that people just couldn't accept Tyrone Power in this role. I'm not sure this iteration of it was overly successful, was it? No, it wasn't, no. Remaking a film that flopped, maybe not such a great idea. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure people are coming up with exceptions to this rule right now as, as, as I speak, but uh, yeah. And I think one of the things also that troubled the 1947 production, and I, I should say the 1947 production is seen nowadays as being a, a classic of film noir, but one of the things that maybe troubled it is the wrong word, but limited it, was the Hayes Code at the time. And there's a lot of stuff in the novel that they really couldn't touch on in that film adaptation. For example, they were forced to give it a happy ending, which I think kind of undermines the point of the film but i think it's still a, a very successful film and certainly if you take a look at reviews of it it's um i think it's got a 7.7 .7 audience rating on imdb which is pretty damn high for a, a classic oh for the 47 one or the yeah for the 47 the, yeah the the 2021 i think has a 7 rating on imdb right Del Toro and co-writer Kim Morgan saw their version as being a fresh adaptation of the novel rather than a remake of the previous film, incorporating elements that had been left out of the 1947 version. So kind of reminds me of a bit like uh, Carpenter thinking, no one's really ad adapted Who Goes There? Let's make a proper <laughs> film of that. Yeah, certainly elements of that. Perhaps the 47 film cleaved closer to the source novel than the thing from another world did to who goes there, but still, yes. Vampire carrot. <laughs> <laughs> Nightmare Alley had a troubled production with shooting suspended for several months due to the COVID pandemic. While this film was well-received, including a nomination for Best Picture Oscar, it was a failure at the box office. Yeah, I can see that. It's not really, I don't know. I just don't feel it's going to create much of a buzz as a, as a kind of a, a big film at the box office or a, certainly not a blockbuster. Lackluster is the word that comes to mind. Mm. But I think part of that was also that it was released at the tail end of the pandemic. So I don't think cinema audiences had quite fully bounced no. back from yeah. where they were before. Yeah. Building on the film noir tone, Del Toro also released Nightmare Alley in a black and white version with the, the name Nightmare Alley, A Vision in Darkness and Light. Mm. I'm kind of tempted to, to dig that out at some stage or see whether I can find it because I can see it working quite well in black and white. I mean, that said, I think the use of colour in the film is spectacular, but you know, film noir, I think, definitely works well in black and white. Yeah, but like you say, it does have some good uses, yeah, particular good uses of colour. So I think mm. it would lose something in that. It has the period feel of black and white, but, you know, that's fine. And now on to a discussion of the film itself. 
1939, although we wouldn't know it because it took a long while for me to work out what the hell's going on. Well, when he says some little guy like looks like Chaplin has invaded Poland, I was like, ah, okay. <laughs> that must have been when I fell asleep, but oh well. Ah, right, yeah. But anyway, we're somewhere in rural America. Stanton, or as we come to know him, Stan Carlyle, played by Bradley Cooper, is dragging a body into a hole in the floor of a wooden house before setting it on fire. He's an investigator, damn it, and it establishes it right from the get-go. Yeah. The fire spreads, consuming the house. Yeah, I knew you'd take to him at that point, Matt. <laughs> <laughs> a, a, a fellow, a, you know, a, a kindred spirit, that's it, yes, setting things on fire. Although why had he pulled up a bunch of floorboards to dump the body in? I didn't really get that. If you're going to set the house on fire, why do you need a hole in the floor? I don't know. You would have thought that he would have burnt better if he was above the floorboards rather than exactly. below the stuff that's burning. But yeah. That, that's my point. He just hadn't thought that through. <laughs> Well, it was clearly his first time. This is the kind of thing you learn from experience. Carlisle ends up at a travelling carnival. There he witnesses a geek show. And now this is the use of the word geek, which is a little different to its modern meaning, mm. in which a broken man, is it a man, is it a monster, <laughs> is the, uh, the sales pitch from the kind of ringleader. This broken man crawls amongst snakes. I didn't notice snakes, actually. Yeah. Before biting the head off a live chicken. Yes, he's like a crazed, almost feral being that's in this pit, like a sort of auditorium with all the, the crowd looking down on it for a, you know, a kind of a freak show kind of style, horrific event, which people are charged a quarter for. Geek shows had been part of... Carnival culture in the US for some time at this stage, and there were a number of different variants of them. But I think it was Nightmare Alley that really brought them to prominence. Nightmare Alley itself was somewhat influenced by Todd Browning's 1932, I think, film Freaks, which didn't specifically get into geek shows, but sort of hinted at them. But here was the first time where they were really sort of explained, I think, to mm. a larger public outside of the people who went to carnivals. And they certainly permeated into popular culture after that. And you see lots of references to them in media since then. And obviously the word geek has mutated within our culture and come to mean something else. Apparently it was a corruption of the German word geck, which supposedly means fool or simpleton. And like I say, there were a number of variants of them in carnivals at the time. They didn't always involve biting the heads off chickens, but they always did seem to involve acts of degradation and bloodshed. I'm very glad that Paul gave me a heads up regarding this scene, because as soon as I saw that chicken came out, I just went to go and make a cup of tea. Yeah, And then I... came back once that thing had happened. Yes, yeah, so I gave Matt a content warning on that one knowing his love of our feathered friends. Kyle tries to skip out without paying, but is stopped by two of the circus performers. Bruno the Strongman, played by the ever-present Ron Perlman, who seems to be in every Guillermo del Toro film. Yeah. And the Major, played by Mark Povinelli. Bruno offers Carlisle a temporary job as a roustabout. The Barker, Clem Hotley, played by Willem Dafoe, ends up offering him permanent work. Now, this is one of the things that really deviates from the book, which I think 
doesn't quite work as well in the film, which is they've aged up a lot of the characters and changed relationships here, which really, I think, makes things a bit weird at times. So in the book, Carlisle at this stage is about 20, I think, and he's being played by Bradley Cooper here, who was in his mid-40s during the filming. I mean, he's clearly trying to play a young character, but he certainly doesn't look like uh, a fresh-faced young man. Bruno, I think, is meant to be a bit older, but not much older. But, you know, it's being played by Ron Perlman, who's in his 60s at this stage. I think maybe even 70s. And we get the relationship with Rooney Mara, who in the book is a teenager. So the, the sort of dynamic of Bruno being sweet on her rather than being this protective father figure, but there's, there's a sort of blurring of the line, and her being very, not quite naive, but quite vulnerable as a teenager, makes, I think, a lot more sense within the context of the book than what we're presented with here, where these relationships... Where it doesn't. Yeah, just don't quite mesh together the same way. And I can see why Del Toro cast a lot of these people, because they're great actors and they bring a lot to the role, but it really changes things, and not necessarily for the better. Yeah, yeah. No, I would agree with that. When the geek escapes, Carlisle helps to hunt him down, tracking him to a haunted house, not really a ride, but like a walkthrough carnival set, mm. which is like probably better than any one that has ever appeared any carnival <laughs> yes. ever, because it was absolutely fantastic. And I was like, yes, I would pay to go through that myself. Yeah. Sees him and tries to be sympathetic, but then the geek attacks him and they have a, a bit of a fight and Carlisle nearly kills the geek before Hotley turns up and drags him back to his cage. Yeah, I mean, like you say, the set design of this film is phenomenal. The whole carnival section. Now, in the book, the carnival stuff is much less of the main story. I mean, here is like the first hour of the film, and it's certainly a, a much smaller part of the overall story. But I can see why Del Toro brought it so much to the forefront, because from a visual point of view, this is just staggering. Every moment we spend at the carnival is just filled with strange sights and colours and beautiful artwork or mm, you know, yeah, resting great. artwork. Yeah, I, I just love the way this film looks. Yeah, I thought he did a really good job of portraying that and making it really interesting. You see some of the sideshows as you're walking past. Mm. Yeah, that's no, really cool. You say the first hour, it felt like a hell of a lot longer to me. Anyway, the next day, Carlisle meets Xena the Seer, not played by Lucy Lawless, instead played by Tony Collette, and her husband Pete, played by David Strathairn, an alcoholic former mentalist. Xena offers Carlisle a job busking for her as well as a hand job. It seems like you can just pay 10 cents and walk into a woman's house and have a bath. Giggity. I guess this was like a, a service that she offered within the carnival because she seems to have... Even though it's a travelling carnival, yeah, she has this house, but it does look like the kind of house that could probably be put on a trailer. You do see this every now and then in the US. Maybe, I don't know. It seemed like they were like a, a fixed location because he did say we're going to go down and join another carnival. It almost seemed like they were of a fixed location rather than touring, but yeah, I don't know. That seems strange to me. 
Either that or the house gets up on legs and follows the carnival. <laughs> mm. But yes, yes, she does seem to offer baths for 10 cents to other people in the carnival. And the bath that Carlisle gets is one with a happy ending. I missed that bit entirely. Oh, did you? It wasn't subtle. I was struggling to stay awake at this point. Right. So Zena's act is this mentalist act, sort of, that involves her getting these questions written down on cards by the audience, which are collected up in this this metal bowl, which then Carlisle swaps out out of sight for an identical bowl with blank cards on it, which he passes up to Zena, and she burns using wood alcohol, saying that she will then read the questions out of the smoke. Meanwhile, the actual bowl full of questions is passed down beneath the stage to where Pete is, at this stage, half awake. I mean, he's like Matt watching the film, except drunker, and is barely conscious, trying to transcribe these questions down on a blackboard that Zena can then see through this glass window in the bottom of the stage and pretend like she's reading them out of the air. Thank you for the envelopes, Mr. Carlisle. Zena's cooking up a good crowd down here, Pete. You sauced? Come on, Pete. Pete, Zena's off. I'll read the first card. I'm just gonna need it soon. Okay, Abigail, write it down. Where's the chalk? People always ask me if I have spirit aid. Well, folks, the only spirits I control are the ones in this bottle. The spirits of alcohol. Worried about her mother. I'll be looking soon. And every card after that, you understand? That bit I did see. This goes wrong when Pete passes out drunk and Xena is forced to do a cold reading instead. Carlisle wants to know why then they don't do this more often. But Pete insists that spook shows are just lies. So like the rest of it is fine. <laughs> this was a weird moral code that they had. And then we see this elsewhere in the film as well. There's this moral code that they won't let anybody think they're actually talking to spirits, but they're quite happy taking people's money and conning them. So it was, and indeed killing them later. But uh, <laughs> yeah, I don't know. It seemed a weird uh, portrayal. It does make some degree of sense to me because the danger that Pete seems to be warning Carlisle about isn't so much the lies that you're telling to the audience, but the lies that you're telling to yourself. This is kind of a theme that's running all the way through the film that what fundamentally brings Carlisle down, it's almost Shakespearean or something out of a Greek tragedy, that he starts losing sight of what is real and what isn't and starts believing his own bullshit too much. In conversation, Zena and Pete tell Carlisle about their old mentalist act, in which Zena conveyed details of hidden objects through verbal cues. This is all documented in a small black book Pete carries everywhere. Pete also reveals some basic techniques of cold reads, such as the black rainbow. This black rainbow doesn't seem to necessarily be a thing, but 
It seems to perhaps be another term for what's referred to in mentalism as the rainbow ruse. And so it's the classic cold reading technique of giving very broad prompts to an audience. But what what seems to be the case here is giving a prompt that contains contradictions. So saying to someone, oh, I can see that you're a very outgoing person, but at the same time, you very much like to be by yourself, don't you? And so you give them both options in a way that seems to be a single suggestion, and they'll seize on one of them. The next day, Hotley shows Carlisle his collection of pickled fetuses. As you do. Yeah, this is a great scene visually. Just this this tent that is filled with shelf after shelf of these misbegotten fetuses floating in formaldehyde. Oatley is particularly proud of Enoch, this unnaturally large, deformed baby with this milky third eye in the centre of his forehead, this large eye. Supposedly, Enoch killed his mother in childbirth and lived for a few days afterwards. There's no whole story around him, but he is this motif that then runs through the rest of the film. Hoatley also mentions that he sells bootleg liquor to the other carnies, and he also keeps the stocks of wood alcohol that they use for burning the cards and other things and of course he keeps them side by side in similar bottles in similar bottles so yes this is inviting catastrophe but hopefully being the responsible bootlegger that he is tells carlisle not to mix them up yeah so that's all right then yeah nothing bad is going to come out this film really is i mean i know it's a noir but it does overdo the cliches somewhat it seems to me you know, like when he takes his watch off and gives it to Pete to do like the reading, I was like, I said to Emily, it's like, oh, that's his father's watch. Mm. And that, yeah, sure enough, is his father's watch. Mm. Uh, it's just so many things that are like so blatant, I don't know, which I guess fits the, with the noir thing, but yeah. So anyway, so Carlisle becomes infatuated with Molly after the two sort of stare at each other for multiple times. <laughs> A young woman who does tricks with electricity, which is uh, very impressive. Carlisle designs a new act for her, a mock electric chair in which she can be seemingly electrocuted and killed. Molly is delighted, but Bruno is unhappy with Carlisle's interest in Molly and takes this uh, um, protective role that we discussed earlier over her, which later on doesn't really come to anything. I don't know that I'd agree that it doesn't really come to anything. It doesn't resolve in him perhaps taking decisive action. But what it does is it lays the groundwork for the people around Molly, the people who care about her, having seen Carlyle for what he is and trying to warn her, but her being so besotted by him that initially she's blind to all this. And so it does set all that up. I don't think it's pointless. It's not pointless, but it, 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 there's a lot of it for what really doesn't come to that much later. She becomes disillusioned with him, but she becomes disillusioned with him regardless of all that because of the way he's later behaving, all of that setup could be omitted. But there is a theme that runs through this film that again goes back to the Greek tragedy idea of it, that a lot of it is about 
warnings that are not heeded that then lead to disaster, you know, a fairly classic theme in tragedy. We get this constant thing that comes up through this of tarot readings and the advice that's given to Carlisle about what not to do, the advice that's given to Molly about what not to do. And you know, the people who are advising them, warning them, are inevitably right. And every time this advice is ignored, it just leads to more and more disaster. Hotley asks Carlisle for help when the geek takes a turn for the worse. The two drop the geek outside a clinic, then Hotley takes Carlisle for a steak and eggs. Yay, fun meal. Over the meal, Hotley explains how you can make a geek through addiction, lies, and threats. Hmm, that was very good, yeah. This is a chilling scene. This is actually the scene that opens up the book. The first bit in there is Carlisle, who's already working at the carnival, talking to Hotley and Hotley explaining how you make a geek. And its dialogue is almost exactly replicated here. How do you ever get a guy to geek? Oh, I ain't going to crap you up. It ain't easy. You got to pick up a broken drunk, a real alky, a two-bottle-a-day full seat. Pick him up from where? Nightmare alleys, train tracks, flap houses, you name it. A lot of folks came back from the war addicted to the poppy, to booze. Now, opium really sinks its claws, but you reel them in with booze. You tell them, I got a little job for you. It's a temporary job. Make sure you emphasize that. Just temporary until we get ourselves another gig. You spike it with that opium tincture. One drop per bottle. That's all. But oh, oh, now this is what he thinks is happening. So you say one like this, you say to him, well, I got to get me a real geek. He says, ain't I doing okay? You say, like crap, you're doing okay. You can't draw a real crowd faking a geek, you're through. And you walk off. Now that night, you drag out the lecture, you laid on thick. All the while you're talking, he's thinking about sobering up. Getting the crawling shakes, the screaming, the terrors. You give them time to think that over while you're talking. Then you throw in the chicken. You geek. Corso. I was definitely asleep at this point because I do not remember this happening. Oh, this is, one of the, this is a good scene, Matt. Yeah, this is good. I think we're getting to the cause of why you didn't like this, Matt, because without scenes like that setting up the ending, yeah. Mm. yeah. Mm. Well, not only that, but I, I'll talk about that later. Pete continues teaching Carlisle the mentalism routine, as saying that the skills of a cold reader are rooted in childhood trauma, that you, you learn how to read people out of necessity as a survival instinct. He also warns Carlyle that the real danger comes when a psychic starts believing his own lies. And when Pete can't sleep, he sends Carlyle to pick up a bottle of liquor for him. Let's hope he doesn't take it from the wrong crates. <laughs> the following day, P 
Pete's found dead, but not in his house. He's like outside in the middle of the fairground for yeah. some reason. Who knows why? But oh, so everybody can stand around and like look horrified by it. <laughs> Apparently, he drank some wood alcohol. Oh, what are the chances of this? Incredible. <laughs> One evening, the police raid the carnival. This is where I woke up again. Hopefully asks Carlisle to stall the cops while he hides the geek. When the sheriff tries to arrest Molly for her indecent costume, wow, because she's showing about three inches of skin. I mean, those are the biggest pants I've ever seen. <laughs> Carlisle steps in to preserve her right to be indecent. He does a cold reading on the sheriff, oaring the man into giving up. And again, this is a, a great scene. The cold reading techniques that he uses and the way he explains them afterwards, the little cues that he picks up on, it's, uh, yeah, it's just fantastic. In fact, Carlisle explains all these cues, like looking at the band's shoes and his St. Christopher medal, and even picking up his name off the warrant that he brought, and talks about how he spun all those together into a narrative. And his colleagues were all extremely impressed by this. Molly, in turn, is so impressed that she tells Carlisle that she's finally ready to leave the carnival with him and set up their two-person act. Bruno tries to stop them, even punching Carlisle, but Molly tells Bruno that she is in love with Carlisle. Zena, the following morning, lets Carlisle keep Pete's little black book of techniques, telling him that he worked for it. In what is, I think, quite a, a bitter little scene. And yeah, again, this little book is something a lot is made of, but not much comes out of. It's like, it's going to be like this little hidden book of magic or something, but I think that's probably the last mention of it. We cut to two years later now, time passes, and we find Carlisle and Molly performing Pete and Zena's mentalist routine in the upmarket nightclubs. During one performance, an elegant woman... Dr. Lilith Ritter, played by Kate Blanchett, tries to expose their act. Now, I did wonder if she was like a plant, uh, mm. but it turns out not. Carlyle keeps his composure and successfully guesses that she has a gun in her handbag, following this up with a vicious cold reading. Well, madam, you are not powerful. Not powerful enough. You are an only child, are you not? Your mother died when you were young. Her shadow looms large and close, too close for comfort. Hardly a day went by in which she didn't crush you down in small ways. And that gun, that gun in your purse, well, sometimes you have dark thoughts about yourself, don't you? And uh, yeah, I have to say, it's an hour into the film when Kate Blanchett turns up and she adds a lot to it. I kind of stopped getting distracted when she was on the screen and she really had a presence that held my attention much more. Who would have thought that a character called Lilith would be a femme fatale? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But yeah, this cold reading that he does on her is this sort of picking apart of all her character weaknesses and the things in her background that she might feel pain from. And it's really interesting seeing this 
as a reflection of a scene that comes later when she basically turns the tables on him. And this whole power dynamic between the two of them is, yeah, I think a, a fantastic bit of writing. Coming back to the idea of that book, we don't necessarily see the book much later on, but the whole point is that all the stuff that we see now with the the act and the the routine that Molly and Carlisle are practicing is all drawn from that book. This is the foundation of everything they do from now on. Yeah, I mean, it's clear that he kind of got all that from Pete. Mm. Yeah. Carlyle then does another cold reading on an audience member, Judge Kimball, pretending to see his dead son. Backstage, Molly is horrified, but Carlyle insists that it went down better than their normal mentalism. Kimball and Ritter meet up with Carlyle after the show, mainly because Kimball wants to hire Carlyle to follow up on what he just did there and speak to his dead son, make contact. And... Carlisle agrees to this. Ritter also leaves her card, which reveals that she is a psychiatrist. Carlisle visits Ritter's office. He sounds her out about Judge Kimball looking for vital intelligence that he can use in his readings. Ritter agrees, but only if Carlisle lets her analyse him. She shares details about Kimball's late son, who died in the great war and yeah these these are some great scenes with her analyzing him and she's got all this uh, hidden recording equipment and so on behind some very classy wooden panels in her office yeah all very nice in analysis ritter asks why carlisle is so adamant that he doesn't drink she uses his aversion to alcohol to dig into his relationship with his father tell me about your father should we tell you about your mother <sighs> When Ritter asks why Carlyle flinched when she poured a drink, he says it smelled like wood alcohol. Hmm. Yes, this naturally leads to a discussion about Pete's death. Carlyle claims that it was entirely accidental. He also talks about how his mother ran away with a preacher because his father was weak and a drunk. Again, I think this plays in more with the book version of Carlyle, because Carlyle in the book reinvents himself very much as a spiritualist preacher, which we don't see in the film here. And mm. so this theme that we see that he sort of ends up adopting the characteristics of a lot of the father figures in his life, I think doesn't quite come together as much here in the film as it does in the book. And we'll be back with more about Carlisle's descent into horror after this short break. Do you like obscure books of hidden knowledge? I know I do. The Blasphemous Tome is a Call of Cthulhu fanzine produced by the good friends of Jackson Elias. Everyone who backs us gets immediate access to a host of sanity-blasting issues of the tome. Join us at patreon.com slash goodfriendsofjacksonelias. Hello, this is Dave from the Frankenstein's Role-Playing Game podcast. We'd like you to listen to us, well, because you hear things like this. Not once for yes, twice for oh, no. How about that? Can you hear me now? Yes. Yes, yes. we can. Very faintly, but you're... You are quite quiet, though. Well, well that's yeah, turn it's you, over you, here because I keep forgetting that if you've got a microphone, you have to be somewhere near it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's... Yeah. 
it's almost like sound is a is a physical thing. Well, I mean, I, I don't want to intimidate you guys and make you feel that you're dealing with a professional. So if this is the level of professionalism you're looking for in podcasts, then please do come and join us. The Frankenstein's RPG podcast, where we try the truly Herculean task of stitching together the ultimate role-playing game. And by ultimate, we're using it in its very broadest sense. Frankenstein's RPG podcast available on all good podcast networks. Come and find us. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias, and today we are looking at Guillermo del Toro's 2021 film noir, Nightmare Alley. In a blast from the past, Bruno, Zena and the Major visit at Molly's invitation. Zena tries to talk Carlisle out of doing the spook show. She does a tower reading for him that ends with the hanged man upside down, predicting disaster. There's me thinking if a hanged man was upside down, it would actually save him from being hanged, but... Apparently, either way up, it predicts just sort of different types of downfall. So there's this almost joke in there where he sort of says, oh, yeah, I'll just turn it the other way around. And... Apparently, for people who know about the tarot, is is kind of a joke there because, yeah, it just means that he's accepted a different kind of dark fate. How we laughed. <laughs> so later, Carlisle goes along and does this private session for Judge Kimball and his wife, and he claims to speak to their dead son and promising that they will be reunited. Afterwards, Carlyle visits Ritter in her office to bring her a share of the fee that he took from the Kimballs. He asks Ritter to keep his half in her safe so that Molly doesn't work out what he's up to. Kimball recommends Carlyle to his friend Ezra Grindle, another great name, <laughs> played by Richard Jenkins, a wealthy industrialist. Ritter warns Carlyle against getting involved as Grindle is dangerous. Carlyle ignores this, of course, and visits Grindle at one of his factories where he is subjected to a polygraph test. It's when I saw this scene, I was more thinking, hang on a minute, this is the asylum from the beginning of In the Mouth of Madness, just shot from the other <laughs> angle of the driveway. And then you get inside and go, yeah, it's the same fucking interior. It's the same building. Oh, wow. All right. In the book, this audition that he does is really quite different. Grindle, instead of starting out wanting to do polygraphs and stuff like that, takes a much more spiritualist approach and decides that he wants evidence that Carlyle can do supernatural stuff. And so he has this incredibly delicate set of industrial scales in a sealed cabinet and basically says that if Carlisle can exert some kind of psychic influence over them and make them move, or at least make them register that there's that something has happened, then he'll believe that Carlisle is for real. And the way Carlisle handles this in the book is really quite clever. Carlisle turns this test into an impromptu seance, telling Grindle a female presence wants to speak to him. This is supposedly a woman who died when Grindle forced her to miscarry. Grindle is convinced because the plot wouldn't go anywhere if he wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> but also, there is 
I think some character stuff here. That, I mean, we see Grindel later going through a lot of stuff that's related to this, and this clearly is the beginning of a pattern of behaviour in him that has tormented him and led to huge guilt and so on. So the fact that he's reached out to a psychic for all this, yeah, I, I don't think it's fair just to hand wave that as this is necessary for the plot to continue. It, it plays an entirely with what the character's about. Yeah, I think that works. I think it's the, that that it's uh, it's quite cool. This whole Grindle mm. thread. When Carlyle presses Ritter for more information on Grindle, and she refuses to give him any. Carlyle covertly, however, takes an impression of her office key before having sex with Ritter. He then sneaks back to her office at night with this duplicate key, goes into her records, and digs out these recordings of her sessions with Grindel, and listens to them getting some key information. This allows Carlyle to research Grindel's lost love, learning her identity and finding a photograph. Carlyle uses this information to reel Grindel in. Grindel asks Carlyle to materialise the girl named Dory, offering him $10,000 per session. Now, that's a lot of money. Yeah, I mean, this is, at this stage, what, 1941. So I, I think I saw that this, in modern terms, works out as about $150,000 per session. Yeah, worth having. Hmm. Carlisle and Ritter plan the materialisation, deciding Molly can play Dory. Ritter says Molly will have to have blood on her hands, selling the appearance through shock. Carlyle finally succumbs to Ritter and takes a drink. And this is something that's been building up for some time, and it's clear that Ritter has been just manipulating him and you know, trying to get under his skin and sees him not drinking as a challenge, something she can chip away at. And so this first moment when he he takes a drink at her behest is like the key moment of his downfall. When Carlyle asks Molly to play the role of Dory, she isn't very keen on it, understandably. Then, uh, while they're discussing it, Anderson, Grindel's security man, comes by to pick Carl up, and he makes several vague threats and clearly indicates that he knows Carlisle is a fraud. However, they go up to Grindel's residence, and Carlisle performs a seance, but Grindel is losing patience with this, saying that for all the money that he's paying Carlisle, he wants to see Dory. Now, this is a scene I hope you didn't sleep through, Matt. No, I I laughed like hell because there's a <laughs> line that we need to address that really impacts the comedy of this scene. You can come in with that at the end of... <laughs> I'll just uh, say what happens. Judge Kimball and his wife are having breakfast in a very... You know, like in their conservatory or something, in their breakfast room, in their house. The wife talks about Carlisle's promise that they will be reunited with their son. Then she pulls out a revolver, shoots her husband then herself, while smiling blissfully. The line that made this mean that I, I wasn't hysterically laughing, but was definitely having a really good old loud chuckle through this, was where a few scenes before you've got Carlisle saying, yeah, I think it was great what we did for them. I really think it oh, saved yeah. their marriage. Yes. <laughs> yes. They were both happily married till the end of their lives. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, this is a blackly comic scene, but also quite a tragic one. I just love the complex series of emotions that are tied up in this one fairly brief scene. Carlisle comes home to find a goodbye note from Molly. He takes a stiff drink, then goes racing to the bus station. When he finds Molly, she accuses him of having an affair with Ritter. Carlisle begs her to stay, saying that everyone in his life has left him. Mm. She agrees to go back with him, I guess, coerced into it, and that night Carlisle sets his plan in motion. He has Molly, who is wearing this white dress, appearing as Dory as she was in the photograph, waiting in a car outside Grindel's house. And Carlisle himself picks a lock on the gate to the garden so that Molly can slip in through this back entrance into the garden, and he tells her to do so at 8pm precisely. In the garden, Carlisle convinces Grindel to send Anderson, his bodyguard, away to avoid interfering with the seance, in brackets, because we know they're going to have a fight later. Anderson heads into the house and listens to the radio, hearing the news of Judge Kimball's death, which suddenly uh, clicks in his mind, maybe this guy is a wronger, <laughs> which he already completely believes because he's already had a, an exchange with him saying as much. Well, I think the reason that Carlisle sends Anderson away is that he doesn't want anyone seeing Molly coming in through the gate. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. You're saying about how, Paul, how you think there was a lot of tropes that got used. I was convinced, and and Tiff, because we both watched the film together, she stayed Mm. awake miraculously through the whole thing. We were convinced, oh yeah, she's going to come through the gate and she's going to get shot. We were pleasantly surprised because we were thinking this is just setting it up for a fall that she was going to go down. But yeah, we we were pleasantly surprised by what happened instead. Okay, I didn't think she was going to get shot, but I did think Mm. Grinda would like run up and grab her. Yeah, that just seemed fairly obvious Hmm. meanwhile grindle tries to clear his soul of sin through confession telling carlisle about all the young women he has hurt instant neon sign appears above this guy saying this guy has to die (laughs) (laughs) yeah as carlisle tries to process this molly comes through the gate hands dripping stage blood All of this is an invention of the film. None of this really is in the book. The whole thing plays out very, very differently. For a start, well, we're about to get to this, but Grindle doesn't die in the book. But, yeah, Carlisle tries to convince Grindle to kneel down and pray before Molly. But Grindle's having none of this. He sees her as Dory, goes up and grabs her, but then realises as he does so that she's not dory grindle loses his temper quite understandably strikes molly and calls out for anderson carlisle at this stage flies into a blind rage and beats grindle to death with his fists very much like he was doing with the geek earlier anderson chases the fleeing couple shooting at them Carlisle runs him over, reversing up to finish the job. Yeah, this is a a classic bit of Del Toro kind of physical horror here, which he's uh, very good at doing and uh, should probably do more of. When they get to safety, Molly slaps Carlisle and walks off into the night, as she should have done earlier. (laughs) But, uh, you know, well, she tried to earlier and he he pulled it back in again. Mm -hmm. Yes, because he is a manipulator. But that whole scene with the car there is just brutal. 
For a lot of this, I was wondering why the film had an R rating. And there were a few really nasty things in there, but even with The Geek, some of that stuff was in the 1947 film, which was made under the Hayes Code and could probably have got by with a PG rating. But here, once we start getting to this stuff, this is fucking brutal. Is R like R18? It's somewhere between 15 and 18. It means the... Okay. I mean, I think it's... What is it here? It's probably 15, right? I would have thought so, yeah. It's like 16 and a half. Yes. <laughs> Very good, Matt. What it means is that kids can see it, but only if accompanied by a parent or guardian. I must admit, I really thought the fact when you see the... Um, what's his name? Uh, Grindel's body on the floor, his nose having been completely shattered and rammed into his skull, I thought that was pretty effective. Yeah, that mm. was pretty gory. And again, yeah. also going into the, the fact that Carlisle has evidently learned from his investigator failures beforehand where he left the body out to burn, uh, or rather put the body below the floor to burn. He ran over the guy again! It's like, yeah, you don't just hit him and run. No, you reverse and do the job properly. <laughs> the BBFC has it listed as an 18 for strong violence, injury detail and language. Ah, interesting. We joke about him learning from his mistakes and reversing back. But the point is that I guess up until that point, everything that Carlisle has done violently has been kind of a crime of passion, almost. He's been caught up in the moment. There have been strong emotions. But this goes from that sort of moment of madness to something a bit more calculating the fact that he goes back drives back and and hits the guy again that's what takes it from being this rage fueled act of violence to just cold-blooded murder hmm. carl goes to ritter's office she puts his money into a gladstone bag when she tells carlisle she loves him however he realizes something is wrong carlisle looks into the bag and realizes all the notes are single dollar bills as Carlisle breaks down before her, Ritter uses all the information that Carlisle has shared with her in their sessions to steadily unravel him, destroying him, calling him a small, small man. And like I say, this is like the reflection of that scene where he did the cold reading on her in their first meeting. This is her finally turning the tables. And then, as if the emotional damage weren't enough, Ritter pulls out her pistol from her purse and shoots Carlisle, blowing his ear off. She calls for security on the phone. Carlisle tries strangling her with a phone cord, but the security guards arrive, smashing in the door before he manages to kill her, and Carlisle runs off into the night. And this felt very much film noir oh, yeah. uh, scene to me, this whole, well, th this whole scene, really. Yeah, this was, this was a good scene, I thought. Now on the run, Carlisle hides in a freight car behind crates of chickens. Yes, yes chickens are back. No head's been bitten off, though. But he doesn't uh, do an Aussie Osborne on them. No, they're perfectly <laughs> safe. He collapses on the floor in position of the hanged man. Does he? I didn't really notice that. Yeah. There, Carlisle dreams of killing his father. He opens all the windows of the house on a winter's day, stealing the sick old man's blankets. And I, you know, I, I sympathise with this. Because uh, <laughs> my wife, Lucy, she will open the bloody bedroom <laughs> window and I'm freezing. And I'm like, why is it so cold in here? And I go to look over the curtain. The fucking window's open, wide open again. So I like, shut it. Yeah. <laughs> We have a disagreement about 
temperatures. But yeah, that whole scene just seems to be like paying off with all the imagery with the chickens and sort of hinting at where all this is going for Carlisle and the hanged man and so on. This is, I think, just a very good bit of visual filmmaking. Hmm. Sometime later, we catch up with Carlisle in a hobo camp, getting ready to play a part in Bleak Prospect. (laughs) He is ragged with a full beard and clearly drunk. He trades his watch, his last tether to his past, in exchange for whiskey. And so Carlisle then staggers off still drunk and finds his way to another travelling carnival, not the same one we saw at the beginning. There he tries to find work. He goes into the barker's office and meets the barker there, spotting Enoch, the pickled fetus, on the barker's shelf. The barker mentions that he bought Enoch from another carnival that had folded. Yeah, and I thought it was a nice touch there Mm. here that it was, I mean, it felt like the same carnival, but a different boss. Yes. Uh, And it was very much like meet the new boss, same as the old boss. Yeah. But it's not William Defoe because you know if he had gone back to him, it, it I mean it feels like he's gone back to him, but yeah. you know it's a different guy. Although also another Del Toro alumni as this, uh, I can't remember the actor's name. Tim Blake Nielsen, the kind of lead character in the first episode of Cabinet of Curiosities, the very unwholesome, uh. racist, or military fella. He seems to get cast very much in that kind of role because he played a similar kind of role in the Watchmen TV series. Carlisle asks the Barker for work, but the Barker is disgusted by Carlisle's appearance and stench. He says there's no call for mentalism anymore anyway. Apparently, taking pity, the Barker offers Carlisle a drink, saying he may have a job for Carlisle after all. This is just lovely the way it's building up, because we've seen that scene with Willem Dafoe explaining how geeks are made before, and this is all just, yeah, you you can see the playbook unfolding. Yeah, so if you miss that scene, Matt, it's going to really uh, take a lot of the power out of this final bit. I just thought it was coming full circle with the beginning of the film because it was started at a geek show. Yeah, but it's, it's the fact that Willem Dafoe explained Carlisle exactly how to like lure someone in by, by putting opium in the, the alcohol and, and slowly getting them hooked and, and telling them that it's just going to be a you know, short-term yeah. thing. So now the Barker asks Carlisle if he knows what a geek is. And of course, Carlisle does. And then he asks him if he can handle the job. And he makes that point of saying, it's just a, you know, just a short-term thing. It's not a, not a long-term job, mate. You know, it's just a short-term. Until we get a real geek. Yeah, and Carlisle clearly does that. That rings a bell for Carlisle. And he's like, yes, I remember all this. And he just breaks down into hysterical sobs and laughter, proclaiming, I was born for it. Yeah. It ain't much, but it's a job, right? Of course, it's only temporary. Just until we get a real geek. You know what a geek is? So what do you say? You think you can handle it? (laughs) Mister.
I was born for it. I thought that was a great ending. I really enjoyed that that final scene. It is very much a a Call of Cthulhu character demise, you know, that, yes. that death spiral. This is like the bottom of the spiral. He knows his life is broken, that he's got nowhere to go. He perhaps feels this is all that he's worth or this is his fate or this is the fate that he's created for himself. Yeah. But I was born for this, to play this role of this uh, terrible, broken person. This final scene is there in the book. Right. It plays out very much like this. But that last line actually comes from the 1947 film. I think in that it's, uh, I was made for it. But you said that had a happy ending. Yeah, then they put another scene on the end of it where there's some kind of redemption and he gets back together with Molly and they all live happily ever after. Uh, yeah. But that's the Hayes Code. You know, they, they wouldn't have been able to get away with the original ending there because it had to be morally uplifting. But mm. yeah, here they managed to go back to the very dark tone of uh, the original. But yes, I think that that last line, which isn't there in the book, really sells the scene. Yeah, yeah, that was really good. So I think a lot of stuff here for for gaming just in in terms of the period i mean at yeah. the start like you said matt i wasn't really sure what period we're in is this like 20s and then it was like no it looks a bit later but the some of the cars and so on look about right for 20s maybe but then it really nails it down when it you know it tells you it is 1939 and then 1941 mm -hmm. you know it's two years later so it's a it's past the standard classic period for Call of Cthulhu but you know the 30s you could play in the 30s 40s whenever you want really certainly pulp Cthulhu you know is very much set in the 30s so this is the sort of tail end of that setting and actually have proper psychics mm, yeah yeah but I don't think there's anything in here apart from the wire recorder yeah. that Ritter uses that you couldn't have in a 1920 setting. The rest of it is fairly timeless. There are yeah. elements of the book that, again, are rooted more in the technology of the time. So part of the system that Molly and Carlyle use in their act involves an earpiece and some kind of Morse code or something. But... Mm. The rest of it is, I think, timeless. It feels kind of like it's set in the Depression era, mm. post sort of 1930 America. But then again, you know, if you're looking at that sort of carnival thing, then it probably is going to be a lot of people down on their luck and you're traveling that kind of almost hobo lifestyle it is not so far from that. So I guess that could have been in the 20s too. Yeah, this certainly made me very much want to play a game that's set in a carnival like that. And I can see why Del Toro juggled stuff around so much for the film, because like I said, you know, he's, he's put much more of an emphasis on the carnival part of the film. I think that is a, a very rich setting, and certainly it suits his visual style perfectly. I think he brings that world to life wonderfully. The book goes in very different directions that I think 
are probably even more inspirational for Call of Cthulhu in that Carlyle there very much reinvents himself as a classic spiritualist preacher. He sets up his own church. There's a woman he defrauds at some stage, a widow, and she's got a mansion, and she basically gives him the mansion that he uses as the church for his new religion. And he starts bringing in all sorts of elements of Eastern mysticism and theosophy into the whole thing, and it feels much more like a a real kind of spiritualist church. Here in the film, we are seeing it much more as an act that he is perhaps dabbling a little bit in, in mediumship and spiritualism on the side, but in the book, that's his bread and butter. It feels like then this would have been improved perhaps if it were extended mm -hmm. to make a TV series yeah. out of this. I think that would have allowed him to actually make more of a lot of the themes that weren't in there and that were in there, a lot of the characters and so on, could have explored them more because as it is, it feels over long as a film because yeah. there's a lot of things that don't really get picked up on and developed. We see them, there's time spent with them, but then they don't really come to very much. Mm. So it's kind of overlong. It could have been trimmed down to under two hours quite easily. But then again, it could have been made longer. But mm. as a TV show, I think that an hour format, you know, 10 episodes or something could have been great. It would have, yeah. there's clearly the material there for it from what we see in the film. And I've not read the book, but from what you say in the book as well. So I think, you know, I can really see that. And then, because there is so much good stuff in there in terms of the visuals and the the acting and the characters and so on but it as a film i think yeah for my money it just felt a bit yeah over long what, what did you find matt i completely and utterly agree there i mean you pretty much took the words out of my mouth saying that i think this could have been easily like a three-part miniseries or if you wanted to extend it to become a full-blown series would have expanded it and really fleshed out a lot of those fairly skeletal bits of the story that really didn't feel like a lot of meat on those bones at quite a few times as a film, I only really kind of perked up in the last 40 minutes or so. I really mm. felt this was a trudge getting through. Christ, how long have we got left on this thing? Kept looking at the timer, wondering. Yeah, I did that a few times. This is over long and really fucking dull for large parts of it. Oh, right. If you would have stretched it out and giving it a lot more care and attention and structure, I think it would have worked a hell of a lot better. But trying to pack it all into one single feature was just mind-numbingly just a slog. Hmm. I disagree wholeheartedly. I think this is Del Toro's best film since Pan's Labyrinth. It's certainly the one I engaged the most with. The first time I watched it, I mean, I'd seen the 1947 film Donkeys years ago and barely remembered it. And I read the book after watching this for the first time. I was sort of puzzling my way through trying to work out how all the bits were fitting together. And I guess... When I'm watching a film like this, particularly for the podcast, I'm watching it in a much more analytical way than I might otherwise do. Then I watched it again last night for doing the synopsis. I actually enjoyed it a lot more the second time round. I mean, I did enjoy it the first time round, but the second time round, because I was getting to enjoy it just for what it was and just sort of trying to write the synopsis at the same time, I utterly lost myself in it. And whatever misgivings I might have had about the pacing and the amount of time given over to the carnival in the beginning went out the window, and I found myself utterly engaged by it. In terms of Guillermo del Toro's films, yeah, I mean, Pan's Labyrinth is 
you know, I think stands out as being my favourite. That was 2006. Since then, the Hellboys, I thought the second Hellboy film I really enjoyed. Really? Um, I mean, the first one oh. is good, but um, oh. The Golden Army, I thought there was some great stuff in that. Oh, gosh. Particularly, I mean, that scene with the, um, is it in New York or something? They've got this massive sort of um, plant monster. That was pure, like, Lovecraftian <laughs> monster. That was, you could see in that if, like, he was to do Mountains of Madness, which is, you know, still the dream, that would be awesome. But yeah, since then, he's like, he's got this great reputation but as with so many people he's got this great rep reputation built on those works but uh, i'm not really sure he's like actually bought anything out that's really outstanding since then but he's done some good things but yeah i mean i i quite liked the shape of water but it didn't didn't knock my socks off grinding Nemo. no yeah <laughs> yeah no i mean it was the one that won the awards and you can kind of see why it had the same sort of self-indulgence of like filming and filmmaking from that period that this one does somewhat you know as a filmmaker i think he's enamored of uh films of that period mm. and we see that very much in the shape of water and i think we see it again with nightmare alley yeah but i think it really works here it works better here yeah as a piece of filmmaking, as a visual spectacle, as a piece of visual storytelling, I think this, in many respects, is Del Toro at his best. Though the subject matter of his films hasn't quite appealed to me as much since Pan's Labyrinth. I really love his earlier horror films, particularly The Devil's Backbone and Kronos. But I think since then, as his got more experience as a filmmaker and he's got access to bigger budgets then his visual style has grown and improved fantastically and i think here finally we have him dealing with at least for me what i think is a really good subject matter a solid script and bringing all those visual skills and that money <laughs> to the screen and producing something that i think is yeah amongst his best work are you a Del Toro fan, Matt? Uh, not massively. Hmm. I've seen Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, I had to fight through subtitles, so that already was a big negative oh, against God, it for me. Yeah. Seen Grinding Nemo. Yeah, probably won't ever go yeah. back and watch it again. No. Have you seen The Devil's Backbone? No. Oh, that's good. I don't, I don't think it's as good as... Um, it doesn't have the sort of magical setting that... Well, not perhaps not magical setting, but magical elements in the same way that Pan's Labyrinth does. It has a sort of real sort of fairy tale magic to it. Yeah. But you might prefer Devil's Backbone. Yeah, it's more of a classic ghost story. Kronos is a bit more Cronenberg in feel, but um, Devil's Backbone is um, is a good one. I think you might enjoy. Is it subtitled or is it in English? No, they're all in Spanish. If I can find a dub version, I might be willing to entertain it, but... Yeah, you might find a dub version. I mean, I'd... I'd to be honest, I don't know. But yeah, I say not, he's just a filmmaker that kind of makes me a bit kind of eh, lukewarm. <laughs> mm. There's nothing of his that's really stood out to me as being, oh, I really enjoyed that. Right. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, as we saw with that other one, we uh, Crimson Peak, I mean, mm. that was another one that was a bit, you know, it had some good stuff in it, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, I'd still love to see him do At the Mountains of Madness, though admittedly yeah. I'm less enthusiastic on that, having seen Cabinet of Curiosities and the approach to Lovecraft <laughs> there. Yeah. That was, it. that was him showcasing other people's films, though, wasn't it? Was it? He wrote the screenplays for some of them. Yeah. 
I can't remember whether he was involved with the writing of either Pickman's model or, or Dreams of the Witch House. I know he didn't direct any of them. I really hope not. No, so they're not like really representative of what we might get from Mountains of Madness, I don't think. Not unless he scripted them. Uh, but mm. yeah, I can't remember. I'd have to check. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. You can find show notes for this episode at blasphemoustomes.com, where you'll also find all our social media links. We have t-shirts and other merchandising available at our Redbubble store. If you're enjoying this show, please consider backing us at patreon.com forward slash Elias. Thank you for listening. Well, it is that time once again when we would like to say thank you to people. Thank you, first of all, to you for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much to anyone who has ever backed us at any stage. And we have a number of new people whose names we are going to write on cards, burn, and then read thanks from the vapours. First off, big thanks going out to Pig Dave. And thanks also to, and I hopefully get this right because this is a weird spelling, Aid J as one word. And thank you very much to Phil Laduceur. And thanks to Nick. And I've got to say thank you to this one, who I must say has the, the most fantastic name here. The singular, Matthew. And if you are enjoying The Good Friends of Jackson Lies, we would love it if you let people know whether this means leaving a review somewhere where reviews might be found, mentioning it to people who are interested in this kind of thing on social media, or perhaps just putting it in a jar of formaldehyde and putting it on your shelf where visitors can see, because there's nothing like a pickled podcast to get people talking. Just don't blow their ear off in the process of telling them. Well, uh, you've been listening to The Good Friends of Jackson Elias. If anybody offers you a job in a carnival, my advice is to say no. It's only temporary, Paul. It's only temporary. Is it? Yeah. Okay, I'll do it. (laughs) Until next time, it's a goodbye from me. Cheerio from me. And a farewell from me. Hello? Blasphemous Tomes. Mm-hmm.